Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. So, the first time I uploaded this episode, the audio quality wasn't so great. So, I've decided to go back and re-record it. The script is the exact same. I just had to go back and re-record every line and re-edit it. But I think it was worth it. I just couldn't stand having that low level of audio quality stay up. So, uh, here you go. Here you go. The uh, re-upload of this episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, the Cassus Belly Project. To begin with, I'd like to thank all of my patrons on Patreon. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcasts. I'd also like to mention that if you have any comments, questions, or anything at all, don't hesitate to contact me at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com. I love getting feedback from listeners. I'd also like to apologize for the gap since the last episode. It's been about two months, but things got a little hectic again with the day job. I've actually been sitting on this script for about three weeks, but didn't have a chance to record it because I was traveling for work. Now for the actual episode. At the end of the last episode, I said that we would be wrapping the Eastern Front for 1943 this episode, but I realized while researching that I had already covered everything I wanted to for 1943. Now, obviously, we will be returning to the Ost Front, but not until we wrap 1943 everywhere else. So it'll be a little while before we find out what happens in western Ukraine and got ourselves to the capstone event of 1944, Operation Bagration. So what does that mean for this installment? Well, I'm glad you asked. We are now going to begin the Italian campaign with Operation Husky. We'll discuss the capitulation of Mussolini and the resolution of the Italian defection, which will set up to discuss the raid to rescue Mussolini and the invasion of the Italian peninsula itself in the following episode. So let's begin episode 37, Foothold in Europe. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget?
After the conquest of North Africa, the way forward seemed clear. During the Casablanca Conference, the Allies agreed that the next step would be a campaign up the Italian peninsula. The Americans still preferred to avoid the whole Mediterranean theater and strike straight into Northern Europe, but the cross-channel invasion was still not ripe. General Eisenhower, now a full general having received his fourth star in February, intended to begin the crawl up the Italian peninsula with an invasion of Sicily in May. Unfortunately, landing craft were perpetually in short supply. Operations in the Pacific soaked up most of the LCIs, LSTs, and LCTs, landing craft infantry, landing ship infantry, and landing craft tank, respectively. Until sufficient craft could be gathered, the invasion would have to be delayed, until July of 1943, as it turned out. In the meantime, several preparatory operations were undertaken. First was Operation Mincemeat. The audacious counterintelligence operation meant to throw the Axis off the scent of a southern European invasion. Mincemeat fell under Operation Barkley, the larger counterintelligence effort to divert Axis eyes from Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. Mincemeat was essentially a scheme to plant false intelligence data in the hands of the Axis. To do this, the Allies planned to have the body of an officer wash up ashore in Spain with war plans in his possession. The idea was to make it as believable as possible so the Axis would buy it. The first step, however, was finding a body. They couldn't use the body of an actual service member killed in action or otherwise. The family would demand a safe return if possible, and it would just be in bad taste. So they contacted a pathologist and described the requirements to him. A few weeks later, on January 28, 1943, he got back to the planners, stating that he had found a suitable body, that of a homeless man who had died from eating rat poison. The man was a little too undernourished for their needs, but they figured he was good enough. Next, they went about forging documents and creating an identity for the body. They decided to make him Major William Martin of the Royal Marines. As a major, it wouldn't be surprising that he was carrying sensitive documents, but he wouldn't be so high-ranking as to raise eyebrows if he went missing. In addition, personal effects were added to the body to round out his character, known as pocket litter in the business. This included a picture of a fictional fiancé and love letters between the two. Correspondence was then forged between Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye and General Alexander in North Africa. The letter was written to suggest that the Allied invasion of Southern Europe would be aimed at Greece, though it didn't say it outright. Again, the idea is to lead the Germans to the desired conclusion without raising suspicion. With an identity and false plans on his person, it was time to plant the body. It was taken aboard the HMS Seraph, the same submarine that had landed Mark Clark in Algiers, and deposited in the Atlantic Ocean off the southwest coast of Spain on April 30th. The Allies would now have to wait on signals decrypts to find out if their plan had worked. They weren't finished with their deception, though. The body was found only five hours after being deposited by a fisherman who took it and reported his discovery to the authorities. The body was handed over to a naval judge, who then informed the British Embassy. The embassy then transmitted a series of scripted cables back and forth with the home islands, talking about a briefcase that must be recovered. They knew the Germans would intercept and decrypt the message traffic, thus adding to the believability of the ruse. After collecting the body and briefcase, the Spanish authorities obviously informed the British, but also the Abwehr, German intelligence. The Abwehr demanded to have access to the briefcase in order to get a hold of its contents, which it believed the British government prized highly. The Spanish, though sympathetic to their fellow fascists, 
did not want to so brazenly violate their neutrality and would not simply hand it over. Instead, under heavy pressure from local Abwehr agents, they agreed to surreptitiously remove the letters from their envelopes so the Germans could photograph them and then return them in a manner that would hopefully go undetected. Once they were done with it, the Spanish returned the briefcase and its contents to the British consul. Though the Spanish did a fair enough job of removing and replacing the decoy letter, the British were able to tell that the letters had been removed. For one, an eyelash had been planted on the paper. When they got the briefcase back and examined it to see if the Spanish or Germans had opened it, they couldn't find the eyelash. Thus, it must have been opened. Second, they were able to detect creases in the paper from the Spanish extraction methods. Now they knew for certain someone had at least looked at it, but they still couldn't know what effect their ruse would have. This confirmation would come on May 14th, when ultra-decrypts of German communications indicated that they believed the Allied invasion would arrive in southern Greece imminently. The Germans transferred an armored division from France and two from the Eastern Front to reinforce the southern Balkans. In total, seven divisions of all types were transferred to Greece from across Europe. In addition, torpedo boats from Sicily were moved to the Aegean, and additional aircraft were flown in. All of this strength for nothing, as there was no impending invasion of the Balkans. Now, all of this isn't to say that all of the German high command bought the story. Many in the Abwehr were skeptical, but the one person who mattered most did buy it, Hitler. So the troop movements went ahead as he desired. Mincemeat was an effective counterintelligence ploy that certainly helped the Allied cause, but more direct preparatory actions were also taking place. The biggest of these was the bombardment of the island of Pantelleria. Pantelleria is a small island, just a tad smaller than Malta, almost exactly halfway between Tunisia and Sicily. Though small, the island was home to air bases and prime locations to field access aircraft to harass the incoming invasion. The island had to be taken to make way for the invasion armada. Unfortunately, just like Malta, it was a nearly impregnable fortress. There was no beaches, only sheer rock faces that jutted straight up out of the water. The only place an invasion force could potentially land on the island was its harbor, which itself was ringed by coastal defense guns. The 11,000 or so strong Italian garrison would be tough to dislodge. Eisenhower was adamant, though. The island had to be secured. So a preparatory air bombardment began that lasted three weeks. The island still seemed formidable, so Eisenhower joined Admiral Cunningham aboard the Mediterranean fleet and shelled it right up to the island, blasting it with the 15-inch main guns of his three Queen Elizabeth-class battleships. The Italian garrison barely responded, so the time seemed ripe to dispatch the invasion force. Before the Allied troops even landed on June 11th, the island and its garrison had surrendered. The Italians had no more stomach for fighting. By this stage in the war, Italy was exhausted, and its people were rapidly losing faith in their leader. Their armies had been defeated in the field. A hundred thousand men of the Italian 8th Army were lost with the disaster at Stalingrad, and 350,000 more have been lost in North Africa, along with nearly all of their respective equipment. On top of this, their cities were coming under heavy bombardment from Allied aircraft, almost around the clock. Something had to give. Italy was in no great position at the start of the war, and years of hard fighting had only withered down her armed forces even more. Italy was the first of the fascist states to begin re rearmament, but this had the unintended consequence of rendering most of its tanks and aircraft 
obsolete by the time the war actually came around in 1940. Worse, the Italian economy never mobilized or streamlined itself for wartime production. Most of its equipment, though well designed, was not mass produced, but rather through artisanal methods. As an example, think of modern Italian luxury cars, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Maseratis, all brands associated with high quality, but certainly not with mass production. In addition, the Allies were seeking to exploit this decline in the national mood by dropping propaganda leaflets across the country. They contained messages encouraging the Italian people to forsake the fascists and surrender. One such leaflet was signed by Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt, reading, The time has come for you to decide whether Italians will die for Mussolini and Hitler or live for Italy and civilization. Even if Italy had properly mobilized and streamlined its wartime production, it still did not have the capacity to compete with either Germany or the Allies. In 1938, its defense budget was only one-tenth that of Germany's. Italy also had a demographic problem. Its population did not recover after World War I like that of France or Germany, partly due to mass immigration to the United States. It simply could not field as many men as its competition, and Germany was no doubt a geopolitical competitor despite the Pact of Steel. Even once men were inducted into the armed forces, its numbers looked better on paper than they did in reality. First, as mentioned before, most of its equipment was a generation behind. But second, Italian divisions were actually weaker in both manpower and in artillery than they had been during the First World War. This was done to increase the number of Italian divisions, but also to allow men to be diverted to Mussolini's blackshirt formations. Lastly, even if men were put under arms, trained, and given outdated equipment, they had very little motivation to fight Brits or Americans. The Italian officer class, mostly drawn from the Savoy Piedmont, the home of the Italian monarchy, and sort of their version of Prussia, was avowedly Anglophile, and had very little animosity, if any, toward the British. For their part, the lower classes, who would be conscripted into the army, had an extremely high opinion of the United States, and many of them aspired to emigrate there themselves one day. Thus, the Italians' two chief opponents were peoples whom had, they had no desire to fight. Compounding this misalignment of foes, the Italians could not forget that they had fought against the Germans in the First World War. The very man sent to clean up their mess in North Africa had cut his teeth fighting against Italians in the Alps, north of Venice. So when it was clear that the Allies were preparing to cross the Strait of Sicily, they were inclined to turn their backs on Il Duce and his fascist state. The Italian monarchy, and the military officer class closely associated with it, had partnered with the fascists in the 20s out of convenience. Hardly an excuse for collaboration, but they were not dyed-in-the-wool black shirts either. As long as the monarchy benefited from Mussolini, Italy's monarchist generals were willing to play along. But as the war worsened, they saw no reason they should sacrifice everything for this authoritarian experiment. When Allied armies finally started landing on the southern coast of Sicily, the upper echelons of the government in Rome finally had the impetus they needed to end Mussolini's 20-year reign. On July 11, 1943, Operation Husky began. 180,000 Allied troops organized into two armies, the American 7th under Patton and the British 8th Army under Montgomery on the right, descended on the island. These armies were composed of 10 divisions, 8 infantry and 2 airborne, the American 82nd and the British 1st Airborne Division. Supporting them were almost 1,600 ships and landing craft, along with a veritable air armada. 
Among these were six battleships, including the HMS Nelson, the Warspite, the King George V, and the Rodney. Opposing them were 450,000 Axis troops, which may sound like a bad deal, but the vast majority of these troops were extremely poor Italian formations. Half of the 12 Italian divisions tasked with defending the island were garrison divisions, with no real means of maneuver. Only 90,000 of the defenders were German, but they were all crack units. The 1st Fallschirmjäger Division, the 15th Panzer Grenadiers, and the Hermann Göring Panzer Division. Unfortunately, only about 30,000 Germans were actually on the island when the fighting began. The rest would be pulled in as the Allies advanced, where they would prove to be the real obstacles to the Allies' plans for taking the island. During the first day of the operation, the Allies experienced setbacks and casualties that are to be expected when conducting combined amphibious airborne operations, both of which are by their very nature high-risk maneuvers. The airborne troops suffered high casualties the first day due to effective anti-air fire and jumpy pilots who dropped some of their troops over water, but otherwise, once they were on the ground, things proceeded much more smoothly. The seaborne invasion proceeded about as well as could be hoped. The Allies experienced very little resistance, and many of the garrison troops were eager to surrender. They had begun to see the Germans not as allies, but as unwanted masters in a war they were no longer invested in, if they were ever truly committed in the first place. Some Italian formations even assisted the Allies in unloading their landing craft. After landing, Patton's forces pushed to occupy the western half of the island, and Montgomery's pushed to take the eastern half, minus Messina. After consolidating their areas of responsibility, they would converge on the city from the south and the west. The idea was not to cut off the defenders and force their surrender, but rather to allow them an escape valve in order to make securing the island easier. The first few days of the invasion went exceptionally well, and both armies were able to meet their objectives. Around July 15th, the courses of events would begin to change. That day, the Germans ordered the 29th Panzergrenadier and 1st Fallschirmjäger divisions onto the island, and they would prove to be the real thorn in the Allies' side. The Fallschirmjäger were tasked with counterattacking the British 1st Airborne Division, and they dealt the paratroopers some costly setbacks. The Hermann Goering Division would inflict high losses on the 82nd, as well when the airborne troops attempted to prevent the Panzer troops from withdrawing to the east. At the same time, the Allies were preparing to converge on Messina, but Mount Etna was proving to be a serious obstacle. Montgomery, advancing north, attempted to pass east of the volcano, but stiff resistance by German troops blocked the route. They were fighting tenaciously, especially the Hermann Goering Division, which fought doggedly everywhere it went. German engineers were busy destroying infrastructure and building obstacles to slow the Allies down. They forced Montgomery to slow his advance and push west of Mount Etna. Patton, meanwhile, was advancing rather quickly in the west against much lighter resistance. Italian and German troops were withdrawing east to Messina and the Strait, leaving the way fairly open for the Americans. General Alexander ordered Patton to delay his assault on Palermo on the western tip of the island and begin advancing his troops eastward along the coast road along the northern edge of the island. On July 21st, Patton's troops would capture Palermo, and another week later, on August 2nd, the Allies had a battle line running from the southeast to the northwest of the island. The preceding month of fighting had given German engineers plenty of time to fortify their defenses, however, forcing the Allies to conduct a series of smaller amphibious assaults to leapfrog up the coast. The Sicilian Campaign, though it demonstrated Patton's brilliance as an armored leader, also played host to one of his most ignominious chapters. 
While touring a field hospital on August 10th, Patton offered encouraging words to wounded men. When Patton ran across a soldier who appeared unscathed, who was clearly not malaria-ridden, when Patton asked him what was wrong, the soldier replied, It's my nerves, sir. To send Patton into a fury, he slapped the man with his glove and called him a goddamn coward. When Eisenhower heard of the incident, news of which spread like wildfire, he ordered the surgeon in charge of the hospital to conduct an investigation and wrote a stern letter to Patton, telling him to apologize to the soldier in question and to never do anything like that again. Patton was Eisenhower's best commander, and he couldn't afford to lose him. Eisenhower tried to keep the incident quiet, but word spread fast, and war correspondents quickly got wind of it. Three of the correspondents who got the story, from NBC, the Saturday Evening Post, and Collier's, approached Eisenhower with a deal. They would suppress the story if he sent Patton home. Eisenhower was shocked that reporters had the nerve to offer him an ultimatum on how to conduct the war, but he didn't respond with anger, but rather with an impassioned argument on Patton's behalf. He told them that it was precisely Patton's brash, aggressive, and emotional nature that made him an ideal commander, and though he might be rough around the edges, it was exactly these qualities that would save men's lives in the end. The journalists were moved in the end, and agreed to not report on the story. But it didn't matter. Another journalist broke the story anyway, which caused an uproar in the States, and Ike almost had to sack him anyway. It was, perhaps, Patton's own actions that saved him, though. In another scene now immortalized, Patton stood before his soldiers in Palermo, after it was reported that his men hated him, and told them in his characteristically gravelly voice, I just thought I'd stand up here and let you soldiers see if I'm as big of a son of a bitch as you think I am. They cheered for him, in thunderous adulation, and the controversy quickly faded away. The July fighting had made it clear that the Allies would eventually conquer the island. It was just a matter of how long it would take and how costly it would be. On August 3rd, the first units began withdrawing, and on the 11th, a general withdrawal began to save as many fighting units as possible. Six days later, on August 17th, the Allies triumphantly entered Messina. Only a few short weeks after the Italian government would sign an armistice with the Allies and join them, though in reality, it was more as if the Italian state had been dissolved. This process began in July, when Hitler flew to Italy to meet with Il Duce personally at a fascist senator's estate north of Venice. Hitler needed to ensure that his southern flank would not capitulate to the Allies, and would go so far as to take direct control of Italy if he had to. His meeting with Mussolini was to ensure the Italian dictator stayed on his side. Mussolini had gone into the meeting intending to make demands of Hitler, but der Fuhrer never gave him a moment. Hitler, surrounded by his bodyguard, launched into a tirade, listing Italy's sins and blunders. Hitler had never forgotten or forgiven the Italian misadventure in Greece that cost him precious weeks in 1941. The tensions were high, and the two dictators' personal bodyguards stood by nervously, thumbing their pistols. Then, an Italian Air Force officer rushed into the room, announcing that Rome was under heavy Allied bombardment. Mussolini leapt to his feet in panic, but Hitler showed no emotion. Berlin had come under regular bombardment for over a year now, so such an attack was nothing new to him. Hitler agreed to reinforce Sicily, and the two men parted ways. Hitler returned to Germany, and Mussolini was heading to Rome. In his absence, a conspiracy had formed in Rome to wrest power from Il Duce's hands. Count Dino Grandi was working with other high-ranking members of the fascist party to somehow extricate Italy from the disaster that it was clearly bound for. When Mussolini arrived, 
Grandi arranged for the fascist council to meet, and thus, on July 24, 1943, Benito Mussolini once again stood before the 28 black-clad members of the council. They demanded that Mussolini surrender his powers, and that the military be placed directly under the control of the king Vittorio Emmanuel II. Before the council voted, they leveled their charges against Il Duce. Grande told Mussolini, You believe you have the devotion of the people, but you lost it the day you tied Italy to Germany. You have suppressed the nation under the mantle of historically immoral dictatorship. Let me tell you, Italy was lost the day you put that gold braid of a marshal on your cap. Take off those ridiculous ornaments and plumes and feathers. Mussolini was taken aback and retorted, The people are with me. To which Grandi replied, In this war, we have already lost a hundred thousand dead, and a hundred thousand mothers cry, Mussolini has murdered my son. It's not true, Il Duce pleaded. Grandi sat down and calmly quoted Mussolini's own battle cry back to him. Let all factions perish, even fascism, so long as the nation is saved. The rest of the councillors followed in their denunciations, and finally the motion to transfer military power to the king was taken. Nineteen voted in favor, two abstained. Mussolini moved to leave the chamber, but before exiting told the assembly, you have killed fascism, as if that were a crime. Next, he met with the king in an attempt to save his position. The council vote did not matter if the king did not accept the decision. He approached him and asked if he had heard of the prank that had been pulled, referencing the vote. Not a prank at all, the king replied. Mussolini launched into an angry tirade against the council, but the king interrupted him. My dear leader, things are not working out in Italy any longer. The army's morale is low. The soldiers don't want to fight anymore. The Alpine Brigade are singing a song that they no longer fight for you. Today, you are the most hated man in Italy. You cannot count on a single friend except me. If you are right, then I should offer my resignation, Mussolini stated. The king looked back at him, and I have to tell you that I accept it unconditionally. Mussolini paused a moment. Then my ruin is complete. Mussolini was arrested by the Carbonieri and jailed in their barracks. Those fascists who remained loyal to Il Duce fled the city and made for Marshal Kesselring's headquarters. With Mussolini out of power, the Italian state now entered into a strange sort of transitional period. Italy was still nominally a member of the Axis, but the new government wished to defect to the Allies as quickly as possible. The Allies, however, were operating under an unconditional surrender policy, so the terms that the new government sought were unacceptable. Further complicating matters was the fact that the Italian government needed to keep their liaisons with the Allied leadership secret, resulting in an uneasy six weeks. On August 5th, the new Italian foreign minister met with the German ambassador and promised Italy was not engaging in talks with the Allies, which was, of course, a lie. The Italian government was busy negotiating their defection, but were surprised by the harsh terms the Allies offered. They'd expected more generous treatment for coming to the table, but the Allies more or less just wanted the Italians to lay down their arms and get out of the way. The only real useful thing they offered was to prevent the Germans from occupying and fortifying the peninsula, but the Germans were moving quickly to do just that. On September 3rd, the armistice was signed between Italy and the Allies, but the Germans were already well dug in at that point, and the Allies weren't moving forward with their offensives. On September 8th, Eisenhower's troops began landing at Salerno, south of Naples. 
The delay was not solely the fault of the Italians, though. The Allied leadership had internal disagreements about how to deal with the no longer fascist government of Italy. Both Churchill and Eisenhower would have been happy to make a quick deal with the new government to deliver Rome before the Germans had a chance to occupy the country. Roosevelt had other considerations, though. After the raucous that the Darlan deal had raised, the president had learned his lesson about treating with fascists and forbade a favorable deal even with the formerly fascist government of Italy. During the 39 days between Mussolini's fall from power and Italy's unconditional surrender, the Germans had moved 13 more divisions into the peninsula, including two veteran SS divisions from the Ost Front, and were effectively occupying Italy. In addition, Hitler had moved to rescue his former ally. The battle for the Italian peninsula was about to begin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.